as we work through and think through Ephesians chapter 3 and what it means to be united for a purpose, what, it, what that purpose could possibly look like. Um, but before we begin, uh, let's pray um, and then we can jump on in. Almighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, we ask that you would teach us all through your word this afternoon. Uh, use me, uh, humble me, and speak through me. And by your spirit, give us all ears to hear what you might be saying to each one of us, so that we can live and love like our Saviour, King Jesus. Amen. Now, on the 21st of August, 2016, Joe Leddington came across a list of items on the back of a scrap of paper. At first glance, he didn't really know what they were for. However, upon closer inspection, uh, the items on the list actually created something. They made something, something that actually bordered on a state secret. Uh, for many of us uh, who know what this product is, uh, we simply know it by its glorious taste and flavour. I am, of course, talking about the recent revelation of the Colonel's 11 Herbs and Spices, which up until recently were a secret. Uh, when I found out what they were, I couldn't help but go online and have a look. Uh, and so I too now know what they are. No longer a mystery, uh, except you need a lot of MSG apparently to perfect the flavour. But for those of us who know what these ingredients combine taste like, that glorious, flavoursome, dirty chicken, we can see here that these, these ingredients, they're brought together for a greater purpose. They're brought together for something so much more. Now, I don't expect today you'll be going to KFC once we're finished, in part because there's a power blackout, as I'm reliably informed, and so the one just down the road is unavailable for you. But I think what you will be seeing here is that Paul is helping the Ephesians, and indeed us, see how the Jews and Gentiles being brought together, it's actually for a glorious purpose. And in order to explain this, he he tells them firstly about his commission, then about his mission, and then he reminds the Ephesians of what their mission is. These three things, Paul's commission, his mission, and the Ephesians' mission, these will help us to see um, what this supernatural and amazing glorious purpose is for God's people. So let's turn to the passage. You should all have um, connect cards if you've got them. That'll help you follow. Uh, and there's also a sermon outline in there as well. But let's look at verse 1 together, which really seems a bit like an introduction interrupted. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now we can see here Paul is starting with, for this reason, and if you're joining us for the first time or if you have already forgotten what we talked about last week, Paul is reminding us that he's writing to the Ephesians from prison. Having been imprisoned for preaching the gospel, having been imprisoned because he was telling people, the Jews and the Gentiles, but that the Gentiles are now included in God's people. 
And in chapter 2, verses 13 through to its end, we were able to see how through Christ's death on the cross, God is bringing about a new humanity with Jesus as the cornerstone. And this unity, this new humanity has implications, which is what he begins to explore. Particularly as we look at Paul's commission. And there are two things that we really should take note of. The first is that Paul's commission, it comes from, it's given by God. And the second is it includes a special revelation. It's given by God and it includes a special revelation. Um, let's look again at verses 2 and 3. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In these verses, we can see that Paul is firstly reminding the Ephesians of what they already know. That Paul, the most religious of Jews, on the road to Damascus, encountered the risen Lord Jesus and was appointed an apostle to the Gentiles, an apostle to go and share the good news of God's grace. The good news that Gentiles could be saved from their sin, not, not by their own works, but by the love of God expressed in Christ dying on the cross. And a part of Paul's conversion was that he was given this further grace, what he calls a special administration of God's grace. That is the grace to carry out the responsibility of being an apostle who would reclaim the good news to the Gentiles. And Paul is clear that this message of the gospel came from God. It's not something of his own creation. And so the Ephesians can be reassured as to the source of, of this special revelation that Paul has been given. And this is, of course, the second part of his commission, that it was to share this special revelation. Now, I don't know about you, but I begin to get this feeling that Paul is trying to amp up a bit of the intensity as he gets to verse 6 and seeks to reveal what the mystery is. And we see that in verses 4 and 5, if you'll read with me. In reading this then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. As we read, Paul is not simply content to remind the Ephesians of where his insight comes from, but he also wants to tell them that there's something a bit more special about it. This mystery to which Paul speaks, it's significant, it's special, because it has not been made known previously. But it has now. You see, previously it's been hinted at, starting in Genesis 12, through the kings of old, through the prophets, then right up until the coming of Christ, the blessing of salvation overflowing to the Gentiles was always hinted at. But following the resurrection and ascension of Christ and then the pouring out of God's Spirit on his people, the mystery of God's plan has been revealed to Paul with even greater clarity. 
clarity that, in fact, the teachers of old didn't really have. And so in verse 6, Paul puts us out of our misery, if you like, and tells us what this mystery is. He says, This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Three things. But for you and me, this sounds kind of odd. It's not like your normal mystery, really. It's not like you're watching an episode of MasterChef and people lift the lid on the mystery box because I don't know what's there. It's not like my beloved Colonel's 11 Herbs and Spices, which I didn't know. No, this mystery is greater, greater clarification of something that already existed. That the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews amongst us, are firstly heirs. But then they're secondly members of one body and then thirdly sharers together in the promise. Let's, let's unpack this because I think this will help us understand both for the Ephesians but also, Lord willing, for ourselves, the enormity of what Paul is trying to tell us. Firstly, I said the Ephesians were heirs together. And this actually meant that the inheritance of eternal life of being a part of God's kingdom, this is also theirs. This belongs to the Gentiles and not just the Jews. But that also means that the promises of God in the Old Testament are theirs also. And no longer do the Gentiles have to undertake the necessary ceremonial rituals to become a part of God's people, such as what's described in Deuteronomy 14 or Leviticus 11. No longer do they have to be physically circumcised, for instance. No longer do they have to become culturally Jew. No, all the Gentiles need, all the Ephesian church needs, all they need to do is accept Jesus. So they're heirs together. But like I said, they're also members of one body. They are united as we heard earlier, they've been brought together. There is no more slave, there is no more free, there is no more Gentile or Jew. The dividing wall of hostility that exists between the two has actually been brought down. Now, I was trying to think about how I could understand better the enormity of what Paul is saying that we are all united in one body. I think we heard earlier that it means that the head from the rest of the body can't really function, that united they work quite well. And I'm kind of sad I didn't think of that myself. But what I was able to reflect on uh, was uh, from my own childhood growing up, um, I learned German for many, many years. And my German teacher um, recounted to us when we were in the senior levels that uh, when the Berlin Wall went up, she was on one side of the wall. Her brother and parents were on the eastern side of the wall. Uh, she never saw them again until the wall came down. And when it came down, I cannot describe to you now the amount of relief and joy that she felt at being able to see 
be be reunited with her family that she'd been separated with by a literal wall of hostility. And this relief and this joy is exactly what Paul wants us to feel about the privilege and blessing of being a part of God's people. Now I said Paul identifies three things. Heirs, united, but also share is together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Share is in the future promises of Christ. Share is in the glorious resurrection that God will never leave us or forsake us. The promise that God works all things for the good of those who love him. The promises that we are his chosen people, his loved people, his redeemed people. His promise that we are adopted at his, as his children and that we are sealed with his spirit. Indeed, these promises go on and on. But these promises belong to the Gentiles as well. For a people who had no heritage, they now have a heritage. For people who were dislocated and separated, they are now united. And for people who had no future hope or promise, they have a future. So having both revealed and explained the mystery of Christ and its revelation and special grace to him, Paul then goes on to explain how it affected him and his personal mission. And we see this if we look at verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Paul now testifies to the work of the gospel in his own life. Paul became a servant of the gospel of Christ, which we know is only because of a supernatural act of God in meeting Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul now seeks to bring glory to God and work hard for the gospel, not himself. He wants to bless fellow believers rather than persecute them. And this was a huge gift. It is not something that he could have foreseen. And I think in part this is because Paul's encounter with Jesus transformed his life. And it's good for us to stop and ask the question of ourselves. If we call ourselves his people, if we have met the risen Lord Jesus, if we've encountered the gospel, have our own lives been so transformed? Because having met the resurrected Jesus, Paul could no longer deny who Jesus said he was. He could not deny his lordship. And as he became a servant of Christ, he was also humbled. He was humbled because he actually understood how proud he had been. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. 
for Paul. He knows that as someone who persecuted Christians, who pursued them unto death, he was the most undeserving of people to be accepted by God, let alone to be commissioned as God's preacher to the Gentiles. And yet he was. And so it makes all the more sense that in his preaching, Paul was used as a living example, as a living testimony of the boundless riches of Christ. That one so opposed to God, one who so despised Christ, could be saved and redeemed and work to glorify him and his kingdom. And here is why it's a mystery. As we heard earlier, the true opening up of God's family didn't become clear until after Jesus' resurrection. It was then that it became clear that Jesus was the true fulfillment of Israel. It was Jesus and not Israel the nation who would bring people together under God. Before we move on, again, it is just so helpful for us to ask these questions of ourselves. Because if each, each one of us here say that we are followers of Jesus, then we are just like Paul, so undeserving to be accepted by him, so opposed to him, ones who actually despised Christ, and yet he still has mercifully saved us and redeemed us through his Son. And so there must be a question about whether our response is to work to glorify the Son and his kingdom. As I said, Paul was hoping the Ephesians would see three things. His commission, his mission, but then thirdly, their mission. The new people who have been brought together under Christ. Let's read our verse 10 together. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the manifold wisdom of God? Why did God wait for this mystery to be revealed? What was his intention? The manifold wisdom of God or the multifaceted wisdom of God, the many-sided wisdom of God, that's the unification of the Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity. And God's intention was that in reuniting Jew and Gentile in the church, his wisdom would be made known to the spiritual realm. The same spiritual realm over which we heard from the earlier chapters, Jesus is seated over and has power over through the church. You see, it's through the church that God uses God uses to reveal his wisdom and spiritual to the spiritual realm. And it's through the church, it is the church that is the conduit, the vehicle that God makes his wisdom known. This is an immense task, friends, and this is an immense privilege as well. 
because I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that when I come to church thinking as we meet together, we're actually making God's wisdom known to the heavenly realms. That's, that's every time we meet, God's wisdom is being declared. Look around at the people sitting next to you. God's wisdom is actually being made known through us. This is amazing, or amazeballs, as I hear the correct phrases nowadays. And it's amazeballs because it should affect how we view church. It tells us that meeting together is far more significant than we realize or maybe sometimes care. It tells us that meeting together has cosmic consequence and significance. Now, there are many applications for this, and I could only think of four. Firstly, I think it... it, It helps me in my understanding when I'm leading others. Secondly, it helps me understand the priority of meeting together. Thirdly, it helps me understand why my timeliness in meeting together is important. And fourthly, it helps me see the significance of how I spend the time that I do when I'm gathered together. Let me explain these a bit more for you. Firstly, for me, this has meant that when I service lead, when I lead music, I'm not simply emceeing a session of people. I'm not leading a band for a concert, but I'm actually leading God's people in worship. I want to help them to understand more about him and who he is. I want to help help you, help each one of us come before our God in reverence and awe and declare his manifold wisdom to the heavenlies. Secondly, I think for all of this, it means that we have to prioritize meeting together. Back in chapter 2, Paul said that each one of us are like stones in God's temple. Now, imagine a bunch of stones, if you will, that are just scattered across the ground. Apart from each other, they don't really look like much. But when they're put together, they actually look like a magnificent temple or building. And so too it is with us. You see, we only reveal this glorious mystery of a people united when we actually gather together. And so I wonder for some of us whether seeing the actual glory of meeting together, when we see that priority, maybe we just need to work harder at being here. We need to work harder at prioritizing meeting together over other things. Not because meeting together is a good thing to do only, because it is, but because it's purposeful and it's part of our supernatural brief. Our unity is only given concrete expression when we actually meet together.
And when we meet together, this this leads to my third point about our timeliness when we meet together. I think sometimes if we don't appreciate the cosmic significance of what we are doing when we meet, then I don't think we'll give it the priority it deserves. I'm mindful, though, that sometimes life happens. It just does. I am blessed to now have a five-month-year-old, and my gosh, does life happen. But I think it's more about what the priority that is driving us. See, I was reflecting on some things that I'm never late for. I'm never late for the train. I'm never late for a job interview. My first job interview that I've had, I was an hour early. That doesn't, don't do that, by the way. You get very nervous. I also realized, as I reflected just on the week gone, uh, I was never late for watching an episode of The Bachelorette. And I was never late for an episode of MasterChef. Now, whilst we chuckle, because uh, they seem quite a bit of extreme, uh, and it, by the way, if you do want to talk about The Bachelorette afterwards, I'm happy to talk about that. But really, the reason why I bring this up is sometimes I think we get our priorities mixed up. Some things assume levels of significance that ashamedly they might and probably ought not to. And I've had to reflect on my habits because I've noticed that I've slipped into allowing some things to really become more of a priority than they ought But coming back to when we meet together, I think that if we view church as having cosmic significance, not just personal significance for you, you'll be more likely to arrive on time. And let's face it, when we do actually meet together, it's a wonderful thing to be able to sing songs together, sing psalms, encourage one another with hymns, which Paul actually encouraged us to do in Ephesians chapter 5. And fourthly and finally, I think if we understand the significance of why we gather, then it also affects how we spend our time together. The glory of our unity, I think, is not just when we meet. It's not just between Jews and Gentiles. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there aren't too many Jews here this evening because pretty much we're all Gentiles. But this is actually to do with the unity of people coming from all sorts of backgrounds. I think for us, we can see this in the way the gospel crosses social demographics. It crosses ethnic backgrounds. It crosses class backgrounds. And so really, that's what it should be doing when we meet together. And so on one level, we make the glory of our unity apparent simply by meeting together, simply by existing. And maybe, just maybe, we have some questions to ask ourselves if that's not happening. For instance, who do we spend time with during or after or before the service? Who do we share a meal with? Who do we seek to serve? Is it singles only? Is it students only? Is it families only? Is it couples only? 
You see, our unity actually calls us to not be defining ourselves based on who we are like, but on Christ. Our community is not built around people like you and I, not us, not me, but around Christ. And these decisions actually show the rest of the world what God's people gathering together really looks like. And it also affects when we meet together, how engaged we are together. Are we present in our bodies and also our minds? If we aren't, then I would encourage you to be. Because even your conversations have a cosmic significance. But there's something more to this, you see. Because it's not just when we meet together, it's also more generally. As Aaron has previously mentioned to us, the unity of the church is amazing because it's also showing the world what it will become, either willingly or not. You see, it's showing the world that it will come to an end and it will be united under Christ and it will look like us. We will be unified across all lines. There will be no boundaries. There will be no separations. Because everyone will be united under the Lordship of Christ. And so believe it or not, friends, when we meet together, we're actually giving the world a taste of what the future will be like. Let's come back to verse 12. Because in that we see that the one who reigns as risen Lord, under whom the church is united, and ultimately everyone will be united under, he is also the one who died for us. That we might all, no matter what our background, approach God with confidence. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. You see, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. For the Ephesians and for us, it reminds us what our relationship with our Creator should look like. It should look like a relationship between a child and a parent. My hope one day is that my daughter, Abby, uh, she can approach me with freedom and confidence because she knows how much I love her. She knows how much I care for her. And so she will come to me with whatever's on her mind. And in the same way, Jesus has so comprehensively dealt with our sin and our shame that we can actually approach our Heavenly Father with this same freedom and confidence. Gone is the uncertainty of our relationship with our Creator. For the Ephesians in particular, no longer did they have to try and win over the spiritual realm to try and divine a future. No, in Jesus' death on the cross, we instead have both certainty and freedom. Because it's Jesus who brings about our reconciliation to God. 
and a reconciliation of all things ultimately. And it's because of this freedom and confidence that we have in Christ and the manifold wisdom of God being revealed in and through the church that Paul can write in verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Why does Paul finish here? I think he finishes here because even though he's in prison, he doesn't want the Ephesians to think that somehow God's plan is not going forward, that his church is not continuing because Paul is suffering. No, this suffering is necessary. If Christian leaders suffer for the gospel, it's not a sign that God's purposes are being thwarted. We shouldn't lose heart or be discouraged, especially if our leaders are making a suffering for the sake of making the glorious mystery of the gospel known, as Paul is here. Now, of course, we can sit here and probably say to ourselves, it's not really so much of an issue for leaders in Australia today. But I think it will become one. It will become more of an issue as we see the day of Jesus' return approaching. It's becoming harder to be a Christian leader who is standing firm for Christ as Lord and declaring his gospel. It's becoming harder for a Christian leader not to be tempted to water things down just to be acceptable to the rest of the world. But whatever happens, we too should not be discouraged. It's right to be discouraged if people are suffering because they're foolish. But if they're suffering because they're being faithful to the gospel, then we should not fear that. We should be encouraged and we should pray. The gospel is still going out, God's kingdom is still being extended, and the church is still testifying to the heavenly realms. We've seen this afternoon that Paul wants the Ephesians to understand the amazing purpose they have because they have been united. United in one body. And we saw that by him explaining his commission and his mission. But thirdly, of course, the mission of the church. That when they meet together, they are testifying to a cosmic significance. That when they meet together, they are showing that they're united for a purpose. Its purpose is to declare God's wisdom to the spiritual realm. Its purpose is to reveal Christ. Its purpose is to show the world what it will become, either willingly or not. And it's encouraged and challenged to persevere in the midst of hardship. We should pray. Almighty God, we praise you and thank you that you have united us for a purpose. 
that when we meet together, it is more than just sitting on seats and singing songs and hearing a preacher speak. It is something of cosmic significance. It is testifying of your wisdom to the spiritual realm. Almighty God, we ask that you would help us to understand the significance of your purpose for your church. The significance of our testimony to the heavenly realms. The cosmic significance that we have in coming together. And we pray, Lord, that as we understand this, we would be motivated by the gospel to keep seeking to grow your church so that more people might be able to share in this amazing witness together. In Jesus' name, amen.